I'm bored. You ever heard that before? It's uh, kind of like, I think, a standard phrase in every child's vocabulary, right? And, uh, you know, here, here's what you tell a kid when you, they say, I'm bored. You say, well, you're just not thinking hard enough. I think that you always have questions. There are some questions that always would lead you to not being bored. And I could talk about a lot of them, but I'm going to tell you about one of my favorites today. Here's a question for you, or someone that says I'm bored. If a time machine did exist, to what age and what place would you go? Would that be cool? I mean, it captures our entertainment industry. How many shows and movies have had, featured some kind of time-traveling device, right? And so you think about that. Now, I, I think maybe you start thinking about the ramifications of that, and it, it also, uh, like, for example, if I, if I took a trip back to the early 1900s and uh, to Detroit, Michigan, and they were making this new thing called an automobile, and you saw that first automobile, you wouldn't be real impressed if you knew what we have now. But anymore, I think I would go back to see different people. Uh, the great people I've read about in history, it, wouldn't it be neat to go back and meet uh, folks that you admire and, and to actually uh, pick their brains about things and, and see how they, they talk and, and how they walk and those kind of things? Well, I, I will tell you, I've had people through the years tell me, if I just could spend some time with Jesus face-to-face, then I think I would be a Christian. And maybe you've had that thought. Well, it would be nice if we could have Jesus here or maybe get in that time machine and go back to when he was walking, the, the period of time that's recorded in the Gospels. That would be awesome. But short of his return... I'm not sure that's possible here today. I know we don't have time machines. And I don't believe he's going to come back before that last, uh, that second coming that initiates the end of time, the replacing of this earth with a new heaven and a new earth. So what are we left with? We're left with the witnesses to Jesus. And I want to tell you, today I'm starting a, a series called The Eyes of John. We're going to talk about the eyes, Jesus' life through the eyes of John as we uh, look at the passion of Christ. As we look at his life and his death, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, we're going to look at his life through the eyes of John, his disciple. Both through 1 John and the Gospel of John, we're going to take different passages and, and see Jesus' life through the eyes of John. And I want to say first, I want to start by talking about the fact that John was a witness, a personal witness of Jesus' life. And I want to talk about how he was a reliable witness. And I want to talk about what he tells us in his own words were the reasons that he testified and testifies to us today. It helps set the tone for this series. And so we're going to ask three questions today about the Apostle John, the disciple John. And we need to start with the most obvious question, who was John? Who was John? Well, we know his father's name. In Mark 10, 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want 
you to do for us whatever we ask. Uh, James and John. Now, James was uh, a famous disciple all in of himself. In fact, it's thought that James was the kind of the, the, the elder leader of the big church in Jerusalem that rose up after Jesus uh, planted the church on the day of Pentecost. Uh, James also was a faithful disciple. Some think he wrote uh, the letter to James. John, he was, uh, hit, well, along with his brother, called the Sons of Thunder. Uh, so you see, they obviously were charismatic. They obviously had some personal presence. But we know they were disciples. Now, first, John was a disciple of John the Baptist, the, the forerunner, the cousin of Jesus, who kind of prepared the way or paved the way for him. In John chapter 1, we read this. The next day, John was there again with, one of, uh, with two of his disciples. Now, that's John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples who heard him say this. Now, John has a bad habit of talking about himself in the third person. Any of y'all do that? My youngest son, Brady, will go through periods where he does that. You know, he's talking to us and he'll say, oh, Brady Tiller thinks this. And Brady Tiller drives me crazy. I think that's why he does it, right? Well, John had a bad, he has a bad habit of doing that. When he, the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following, asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. James and John. John ends up staying with him as does James and become uh, his first disciples, his first followers. And they stayed with him uh, through the good times. They stayed with him through the hard times. Their relationship had grown so much that by John chapter 19, you read these words in verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother there, now where is Jesus? He's on the cross. When he saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, there is John in the third person again, standing nearby. He said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her in to his home. You see, uh, they had become brothers. They had become friends to the point where uh, Jesus gives his mother to John instead of his other siblings. And John, obviously, I think probably took care of her. Uh, John is close enough to Jesus that he can testify to all of the things that we need to know about Jesus. Uh, John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. There's a phrase there that says that he is close to the, the, the heart, close to the, the breast. It's the same phrase you see when we read that Jesus had a disciple whom he loved, John, when John uses that phrase about himself in the third person, the disciple who Jesus loved, it's the same phrase. John was close to the heart of Jesus, and it's the same relationship Jesus had with the Father. He was close to the heart. I wonder if you think for a moment, who's close to the heart with you? Maybe it's your, your parents, maybe it's your, your children, Maybe it's some good friends. 
or other relations. But the fact I'm making to you is just as Jesus was close to the heart of the Father, so was John the disciple close to the heart of Jesus. It's the same phrase. It's the same turn of word. We read about that in John 13, 25. Leaning your back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Leaning back against you, close to his heart, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Here's the thing you need to understand. John's gospel differs from the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about who Jesus was, what he did. They, they kind of give a, a chronological history of his ministry. Well, they mess with the chronology a little bit, but they're giving historical facts. Uh, John's gospel is far more personal. It's about what Jesus thought. It's about what he felt. It's why I always recommend to new believers, as they become Christians, I recommend to them to start by reading through the gospel of John. And I would say that to you. If you ever have folks in your life who are new Christians, you make that same recommendation because it it is very personal. In 1 John, this letter that we, we have the passage from today, I want you to tell tell you in these short chapters, the word love or its derivative is mentioned 51 times, indicating that John knew firsthand the love of Jesus, and John loved Jesus with all that he had. Now, I say that to you, and, and you might then think, well, that tainted him as a witness. I would respond by this. I would say to you, when you face persecution, when you face the potential death, loss of your life, because you testify into believing in someone, you you testify to the divinity, to that person being the Savior, if you were threatened with execution, I think unless you really believed it, uh, you would go back on that testimony. You'd retract that testimony you'd take it back but John John writes some of the most powerful words in all of scripture the gospel of John and first John and we're going to read those first four verses in these answering these next two questions but what I want you to hear is that John was a personal friend and witness of Jesus who loved him and was loved in return the second question is this why is John a credible witness? Why is he a credible witness? Now, if I want to find uh, an expert on something, then I, if I want to know about something, I'm going to try to find an expert, right? So this week I filled out my first NCAA basketball tournament bracket. And I'd never done it before. In fact, the name of my bracket is a shot in the dark. And so I hurriedly spent some time trying to find some experts. And you know what I found out? Nobody knows who's going to win. and They're all guessing, right? But for some subjects, you have people that are more learned than others. And if I wanted to know how, about cooking, I'm going to try to find somebody that's been doing it a while, that's studied it, that has become expert in it, in any subject. Well, John has the expertise of sharing three years of life. And he puts it in a way that I want to draw out for you today as we begin here with 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at 
and our hands have touched. This, is, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's saying concerning Jesus. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. He's using verbiage that is straight from the legal setting, straight from being in a courtroom setting. He is ready to swear his life, to, to be a witness, to testify that these things are true. And he's talking about Jesus. And notice there are three levels of testimony there. How does he begin? We've heard. We heard what he taught. And you can be somewhere and hear something and believe it or not, right? But you hear it, that's the first level. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like the way, different ways that we communicate, Right? How many of us prefer a phone call over a face-to-face meeting? Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but different ones of us have different preferences. I can tell you this. I greatly prefer face-to-face. My staff knows often they'll text me or they'll call me and I'll go see them face-to-face if I can. It's just my preference. And and sometimes uh, it appears that I'm not going to answer a text but I'm waiting until I can see them face to face, right? Uh, but hearing's that first level. Uh, the phone call is that first level. Uh, the next level is seeing. We saw him. We saw him in the flesh. We saw him as he reacted to different situations. We saw him as he reacted. This is why in the time machine I would go back to walk with Jesus because I'd, I'd like to see how he dealt with people that are just aggravating, right? I know none of y'all have people around you that are aggravating, but I wonder how he would deal with that. And maybe he could show me an example so I could be more patient and, and uh, deal with folks that way, right? He, you see it. So you hear it, you see it, and then what's the most intimate form of shared experience? It's touch. We touched him. In fact, it took that for Thomas, his disciple, and even more, what I want to share with you If you now think sometimes, man, I wasted so many years not following Jesus, not being close to him. These 12 disciples were with him for three years. And they didn't fully grasp all that he was telling, all that he was showing. Even though it was miraculous, they didn't get it. In fact, one of them, Judas, betrayed him. And even John, even John didn't fully get it until those wonderful events of that Easter Sunday happen. But now John wants everyone to know that we have heard him. We saw him. We touched him. And he is the life. He is the word of life. He is the difference maker. He's the one that can turn your whole life in a different direction. He's a credible witness because he has been there and personally heard and saw and touched him. That leads me to the last and probably most important question for you. Why and to what does he testify? Why and to what does John testify? Well, he tells us. First, in the second part of verse 2, And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Sometimes 
the Bible is called the revelation of God. Not, not talking about the last letter, but it's a revelation. That word used there is the made, we made manifest. We, we made known something that previously was hidden. And, and that's why I say he, he comes to testify to this promise of eternal life. If you look in the Old Testament, uh, when it talks about the end of life, uh, you get some sense, but it's the concept of, of heaven is not clearly defined and clearly laid out. I, it says of people like Enoch that they walked with God and then they were no more. And it says Elijah was taken up on chariots. And, and you got this sense, it's kind of loosely, that, that the people who believed in God would, would be taken care of. But in the New Testament, we start seeing this promise of eternal life fleshed out. And so it means for us this, that in the lives that we have, these human lives, we all have a tendency to do our own thing as opposed to God. We have a tendency to either do what we want to do that God doesn't want us to do, sins of commission, or we don't do the things that God would like us to do with our lives. We, we don't live in the, the will of God. Those are sins of omission. And for either kind of sin, the punishment, the penalty, eh, justice only makes sense if there are consequences. The consequence, the Bible tells us, is death. Romans says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin are death. But what John's saying here is because Jesus came and we saw him and we heard him and we touched him, I can tell you this, that there is a way to overcome that consequence. There's a way to overcome the death that all of us will face. And that is to believe in him and to be saved. By faith, believing Jesus is the Son of God, you can be saved. And you hear that word, you confess and repent of your sin, you testify that you believe Jesus is the Christ, you're baptized into him and you walk in righteousness you can have eternal life. The two, we see in the book of Acts, chapter 2, the two things you receive upon confession, repentance, testifying that Jesus is Lord and baptism are the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is, you receive eternal life. Like I said, believing in Him can change the course of your life for eternity. Well, I tell you, it sure makes a difference in those funeral settings, doesn't it? To know this promise. It sure makes a difference in those doctors' waiting rooms, or even worse, those little rooms they take you to to give you challenging or dangerous news. It sure makes a difference there. The promise of eternal life can be had by all. It is for all. If you don't know him, if you haven't made that step, I want you to talk to me about that and and not delay. Maybe even today might be the day of salvation for you. The second benefit, uh, the second reason that Jesus, uh, excuse me, John was willing to testify, he wrote down these words, is mutual fellowship. Mutual fellowship. That is that we could have what the Bible calls in Greek koinonia. It is uh, something that 
is a little bit more than friendship. I want to kind of define for you the Christian fellowship that I'm talking about. And this is from the Life Application Bible. I thought they worded it well, so I want to share that with you. It says, first, Christian fellowship is grounded in the testimony of God's Word. Without this underlying foundation, togetherness would be impossible. In other words, we need the truth of God, His, His Word informing, uh, binding us together in fellowship. Secondly, Christian fellowship is mutual, depending on the unity of the believers. That is, it means, I think, coming together, not necessarily agreeing on everything, but on those areas uh, that are gray, those areas where there is no clear teaching of Scripture, we allow for diversity. We can uh, agree to disagree, if you will. We can still be brother and sister, Christian fellowship. Thirdly, Christian fellowships renewed daily through the Holy Spirit. That's why it's so important you receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit by becoming a Christian. True fellowship combines social and spiritual interaction and is made possible only through a living relationship with Christ. You know, it was uh, 20-something years before I ever heard really that concept. And maybe it's new to you. Being a Christian is about having a, a living daily walk with Jesus. It's why... I wanted to emphasize for you, that's what John experienced. John saw and heard and touched. And you might say, well, Jesus is not here physically for me. Well, I think through his words, through his spirit, you can have just as real a daily walk with him. And it's the basis of this fellowship. As I walk with him and you walk with him, we have a bond that transcends mere friendship if you work with someone who loves jesus and walks with jesus and you do as well you have a bond that transcends the workplace relationship likewise in a blood family once twice removed or none you have that it it just takes it to a different level and it's based in the truth of God's Word. It's based in and informed by the Spirit flowing through you, and it is a a relationship with Jesus that gives you that ability to have mutual fellowship. Uh, Lastly, it says Christian fellowship demands adherence to truth. In this case, it required loyalty to Jesus as the truth rather than the esoteric knowledge of the heretics. You might know I've taught you about 1 John before. It was written kind of in response to a heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was all about that Jesus was just spirit. He wasn't body. He wasn't really a man. And it was completely false, but misled a lot of people, just like false teachings do today. Here's what I need for you to hear, that that the basis of this fellowship is about the way that we live our life in response to Jesus. The way I like to put it is a disciple of Jesus, and that's what all of us want to be, A disciple of Jesus is a person who seeks to please Jesus in every area of their life. That is, if you're married, you seek to be, as a husband, a husband that pleases Jesus as you interact with your wife. And vice versa. Parents, grandparents, bosses, workers, you you get what I'm saying. That, that, That seeking to please Jesus, confessing when we fall short, that that's, what, that's the power that energizes the fellowship that we have, both with him and with other Christians. Us all seeking to please him together. 
us all seeking to walk in relationship with him together. That's what John's testifying to. That's what's available for us. And lastly, he says, joy that is complete. Joy that is complete. This is verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, scholars differ over whether John was saying, it makes me overjoyed when you hear about Jesus, the word of life, and you respond. Or it's talking about kind of mutual joy. We, we write this because we know that this will bring joy to you who hear it, you who respond. Whatever the case, it, it makes no difference really. What this says is that for all who believe in him, all who seek to please him, you have the potential to walk with something that those who don't him, know him won't have as joy. Joy. Now I've told you before, joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is a feeling, it's an emotion, it's conditional, it's based on what's happening to you or how you feel that day. Where joy is far more, it's far more a state of mind. It's far more uh, having an identity. As you are a believer, as you're a son or daughter of God, a brother of Christ, as you're a child of His, then you can have and develop over time a sense of joy, of knowing God's got whatever it is you're going through. He'll deal with it. He'll take care of it. Life is tough. Life is a challenge. If it's not so much now for you, just wait. It's going to happen. Trials and troubles come to all of us sooner or later. And what John is saying is, you've got hope. You've got the potential to have joy in spite of whatever is going on around you. In the fall of the year, it's been about 30 years ago, Linda, a young woman, was traveling along a rutted and rugged highway from Alberta, Canada to the Yukon. Linda didn't know that you should travel to Whitehorse. You shouldn't travel there alone in an old rundown Honda Civic in late fall. So she set off where only four-wheel drivers normally venture. You know, I remember being like that. Uh, you know, you thought you're eight foot tall, tall and bulletproof when you're 22 years old, right? You could do anything. You didn't need to pay attention to conventional wisdom. That's just old people talking. Now I'm the old people. The first evening she found a room in the mountains near the summit and she asked for a 5 a.m. wake-up call so she could get an early start. <laughs> the clerk looked at her like she was out of her mind. She didn't understand that. But when she woke up, in the dim light, she could hardly see anything. There was fog everywhere. Not wanting to look foolish, she got up and went to breakfast. Two truckers invited Linda to join them, and since the place was so small, she felt obliged. Where are you headed, one of the tr truckers asked her. She said, White Horse. In that little Civic? No way. This pass is dangerous in weather like that. Well, I'm determined to try, was Linda's gutsy, if not very un un or er uninformed response. Then I guess I'm just going to have to hug you, the trucker replied. Linda drew back. No, there's no way I'm going to let you touch me. Not like that. The truckers chuckled. We'll put one truck in front of you and one truck behind you, and that way we'll get you through the mountains. All that foggy morning, Linda followed the two red dots in front of her and had the reassurance of a big escort behind her as they made their way safely 
but through the mountains. That's what the church is supposed to be like. John gives this testimony so that you will know that you don't have to walk through life alone. You can walk with Jesus. You can walk with your brothers and sisters in mutual fellowship. You can walk with your brothers and sisters toward eternity with a joy that is complete. This is the witness of John. Let's go on this journey together. Father, as we think about these things today, I pray that if we haven't made a decision about Christ, if we're on the fence, that maybe today would be the day of salvation. But if we've, we've made that decision, then maybe aren't experiencing life like John writes about it, like I've been talking about. Help us to, to come closer to you. Help us to, to live our life your way instead of holding on control to our life. And instead of, because of our pride, because of our self-sufficiency, not giving you all. Maybe in some areas of our life we're not pleasing you. Help us to confess and repent of that today that we might have closer, a closer walk with you. I pray it.